Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tiny DevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today with me, I have, I'm going to try to say this right, Gorian Javanovsky. Did Wonderful. I get it close? You got it. You got Great. it on spot. Thanks for coming on today, Gorian. Uh, we're going to be talking about your company, uh, AirCare. Did I, is that right? Um, and I don't know mm -hmm. what they do yes. yet. So this is going to be just as exciting for me as for everybody listening. Um, but before we talk about the company, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us how long you've been doing tech what, and what you, what you do. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to share, share the story. I am a um, software engineer by trait and an eco-activist by heart. I have uh, been trying to use technology to improve the situation, especially with preserving the environment um, and battling the climate crisis that we have, not only here in my home country of, of Macedonia, but also all around the world, uh, wherever I can reach. Uh, from a technology perspective, I started teaching myself how to code when I was in seventh grade, way back in elementary school. Uh, we had a magazine here about coding, uh, which came out. Uh, but unfortunately, I missed the first issue, and I had I had the second one. And in the second one, they were already talking about, hey, you look at this code and write it in, and it'll do these things, which was great. But I didn't know where to put the code because I missed the first issue, which which had the little <laughs> CD with the program. It was Visual Basic six, I think, back in the day. Okay. Uh, so I had to figure all of these things out on the go. Uh, use a little magnifying glass to look at the screenshots on the magazine to see what what it says on the bar wow. to understand what app it was. Uh, but yeah, from from that point on, I taught myself how to code, and ever since I've just loved to tinker with technology. So let's talk about your company, because of course, uh, on this podcast, we like to talk about solving big problems with small teams and small companies. And I know you're working on a small company. So AirCare is the company. What what is the product or service that AirCare uh, sells or is intending to sell? Uh, so we want to help you know what you breathe. Okay. If you open your window. Let's say here, I have a window in front of me. I open this window. I want to know if the air that I'm going to get in, in my house is going to be good or not. Should I take my dog for a walk? Uh, or might there be smoke in the air from wildfires, from uh, factories, from burning wood? Basically helping everybody know what they breathe and then taking it to an extra level uh, apart from that. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, especially people with allergies, are already familiar with websites depending on what country they live in you know they can tell you what's the air quality today should i go outside should i wear a mask whatever uh, but this is going to be more detailed i guess than that and maybe more localized what, what's the difference so there's a couple of things first of all um we try to gather as much data as possible we have data from i think last i checked over thirty-five thousand uh sensors around the world that we're able to get data for. And now we're expanding that network as well. And this data comes from government measuring stations that, I don't know, the, the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, would put out there, or my local government here. It comes from volunteer measuring stations, which people like you and I can buy and set up on our windowsill. Um, but it also comes from satellite data. So we work with data from the European Space Agency, which have satellites that orbit the Earth and record air pollution on the ground. So we try to fill in voids where there's no ground data using all of the satellite data. So all in all, we want to have a very clear picture, either down to the block level uh, of a city or or as wide as a city if there's no sensors there on what you guys breathe. 
The second part that makes Aircare much more interesting is that we're built on three pillars. The, our, our mission technically is built on three pillars. We want to inform, we want to educate, and we want to empower. All of the other competitors, all the other websites, will will tell you what the air quality is outside. We'll tell you and they'll tell you. Uh, are we more precise? Do we have more data? Do they have more data? It depends on reach. But we don't want to stop there. I mean, great, you know outside is polluted. Now what? What is my next step? We write a lot of content in the in the app, educational content to help you know exactly why air pollution is important. Because unlike, uh, let's say, COVID, for example, air pollution takes a very long time to take a toll on your health. But when it does, it's too late to do anything about it. So we want to educate people that, yes, you might go outside and not feel that bad, but this in the long run is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt your family, your pets, the environment. And then the last step is, okay, I know that it's bad outside. I know how it's going to harm me. What do I do about it? And this is where we want to engage our users. We want to get them out there to do something for this, either by connecting them to local NGOs, eco-organizations that have workshops, that have protests, uh, or simply to, to tell them where to lobby, who to talk to, uh, to your local representatives to get more greener and cleaner policies out there. So it's not only about informing, but also educating and empowering our users. Wow, I have, I have a lot of questions here, so this is going to be interesting. And they aren't even technical yet, which is I, I definitely want to get to. <laughs> not a problem. Let's do them all. Uh, let, let, let's start at the business level. What's your revenue model? I mean, how, how do you turn this into something that pays the bills? Right. So we have two revenue streams, B2C, B2B. Uh, the B2C side is we have a pro version of the app, which unlocks extra features, basically quality of life improvements for people who want to support the team. You can subscribe to it at, uh, I think, one twenty-five dollars uh, a month, which is, which is nothing in, in today's terms of, of subscription models, something to support the team. Of what we do the b2b side is of course the, uh, the bigger and more interesting side is where we um, basically collect all of this air pollution data and then we help companies make better decisions using this data let me give you a clear example because when i started out with this idea i said who would want to use air pollution data what company would would, would care to do this first of all we found out governments care governments that care about air quality, care about the data as well. There's governments that simply don't care at all. But the ones that do want to know uh, how bad the air quality is outside and want to know if the methods that they're using to better the environment is actually doing anything if you look at the data. Companies like uh, L'Oreal, companies that use uh, that develop skincare products, they want to know which markets have problems with air pollution and when because they have special creams, for example, that go on your face, that help with tackling the effects that air pollution has on your skin. There's a lot of these weird use cases that we found out through years of research that companies use this data for. So we sell air pollution data to companies, and what we also do is we help um, we help them with custom solutions uh, on directly on the app. So, for example, if you are a uh, eco company or a green company or do something to better the environment, you can have ad space directly on the app and you can reach out to all of our users because that's your very, very targeted audience there. You don't have to do all Facebook and Google ads. You can really target the people who care about the environment. I, I want to, I mean, I don't know, you, you've got my mind going about activism and, and, and environmentalism and all this stuff. And so let, let's touch on that since that's the topic of your company sure. before we dive into the technical stuff. Um, sure. So you talked about you know things we can do as, as a consumer of the app, uh, and you talked about contacting 
government representatives and so on. But like on a day to day basis, what do you encourage your users to do? I mean, it, I, mean I, I hope there's more nuance than just don't go outside today because the air is bad. Of course. <laughs> of course. No, no, no. I mean, th th that's the first step you should do if, if or if you go outside, we recommend you you, you wear a mask. I mean, um, unfortunately, because of COVID, we all got used to wearing these uh, these filtered masks and those mm -hmm. actually stop air pollution particles as well. But of course, there's there's little things you can do there. You can you can use your bike or use public transport instead of using a car, especially in, in, in bigger cities where you have the option to do that. You can uh, recycle, for example, so that not all of your trash goes into one place, which it gets burnt and then again pollutes the air. If you heat your home using wood, you might want to, to, to switch to electricity or use solar um, energy to do that instead of using wood and again polluting the environment. But the the whole story of air care and, and where it started, and this is why I kind of t talk about uh, lobbying with your with your elected officials, is because that's how we started and that's how we made a change in my home country of Macedonia. Because when I was growing up, um, there's there's this very incredible picture that's just taken by a drone over the city. You can see that there's what appears to be a city there, but because the smog is so dense. You can only see three skyscrapers that are poking through the smog. And then one big mountain on which we have in the year 2000, we built a, a big cross that lights up a millennium cross. And us from Skopje, we uh, we tend to have some some dark humor and say, hey, look, they put a big cross. So it's like a graveyard. They buried the city in, in pollution and they put a big cross on top. <laughs> Sometimes we have to use a, a comedy to to write in the situation. But uh, yes, it was it was quite bad here. And nobody was talking about how bad the air pollution is. We data existed. There were 10 ish sensors from the government installed, but they were being presented on a website that seems to be built in the 90s and, and forgotten about. So either if you either had the luck to find them, uh, you wouldn't understand the data that's there. And once I made AirCare uh, into an app that anyone from their own pocket, from their own hand, can see what the air quality is outside. Using already existing data, mind you, I did not do anything else with with no extra data. A lot of people not only got aware about it, but they went out on the streets. So we had massive protests all around the country. We cities were blocked by these protests. I think five of the major cities were, and people started demanding that the government take serious action because um, we all breathe the same air at the end of the day. You, the, the, nothing differentiates you from me, from from my neighbor, or from the guy who's made millions and millions. We all breathe the same air, and this is how the whole story got started. That's a great segue because I wanted to ask about how the company got started. Um, whose idea was it? Was it yours, or I know you work with other people? Um, just you want to be? Just tell me that story. Where did the idea come from, and how did you get started? Um, so this was during my university years here. I was I was studying uh, in, in the local IT university. Um, and together with friends, we were trying to teach ourselves how to code mobile apps. We didn't have a course back then on, on, on mobile apps. So we started going on YouTube, looking at tutorials. Okay, I think it was Android back then. I didn't even have an iPhone, so I couldn't test and work with iPhones. So it was purely Android-based Java coding. Um, and while I was developing my, my first prototype app, I said, okay, I want something useful. At least if I'm going to teach myself how to make an app, let's make something that that's a bit useful to me, not just to say hello world, my name is Gordon. Let's let's do something interesting. And this is when I stumbled upon this old website that I mentioned from the Ministry of Environment here. And, and I look at the the website and I don't understand the data, so I decide, okay, 
let's check some endpoints. I, I did a bit of network request uh, looking up and seeing seeing what, what things are going on in the background, and I found an API. So I said, okay, let's download this data. Let's let's parse it. Let's let's check out what it, what, it, what it's trying to tell me. And I was shocked when my algorithm, which was supposed to give me a, a final number of the data, constantly kept telling me it's polluted 20 times over EU limits. And I constantly kept looking for the bug. Maybe two times. It can't be 20. Maybe two times. Maybe 0.2 times. No, it was 20 times over EU limits. And this is where the shock factor set in. And I said, wait, you mean that what we're breathing outside is basically cancer? That's what we're breathing? And this is not the smell of winter. This is actually smog. We used to romanticize it. Oh, it smells like winter. No, it's smog. It's crazy. Don't, don't breathe that. And I think this is when me and, me and uh, a couple of friends, we, we said, okay, can we do something about this? Um, so this is when AirCare was born back in uh, its old name and its old form. It used to be called Moi um, Vozduch, which in Macedonian means my air. Um, but uh, we had to rebrand it for global purposes, of course. So it, it got started as a student project and it went on to be a student project for quite a long time. Um, I started my activism at that point eight years ago. Um, I decided, hey, this is this is helping out. A lot of people got interested. A lot of media picked up on the story. I can find some very old cringe uh, interviews of me on local media talking here and, and being very confused as to how to explain this this issue. But uh, yeah, from 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 then on, it just kept growing and growing um, and growing locally until one day we decided, hey, you know what? We're not the only ones that face this problem. Let's see if other countries also have this issue. So how many of you were there initially when you when you started the project? So initially it was me that was working fully dedicated on the project, but I also had support from three or four people um, in, in different areas, which I needed. Um, when we decided to, to develop an iOS app, we had a, a friend that knew iOS to come along and, and write it in Swift. Um, or sometimes when I didn't know what I was doing with the server, because that's the first time I ever touched a server back in front end, I, <clears throat> I was learning on the go. Mm-hmm. So I'd, uh, I'd have people helping out. So I always say that AirCare, while maybe I was the person that was doing most of the coding, it was always a community effort that that built the app. Okay. And how many are at the company now? We are five people now. Five people. And wh- what's the breakdown? Like, Are they all technical or do you have sales and marketing or what, what kind of breakdown do you have there? So we have marketing, we have design, uh, we have two people that are technical and we have a copywriter. That uh, that works on on the majority of the content that you see within the app and with our uh, with our blog. And you're one of the technical people. Yep. So so you plus well, one fortunately or unfortunately, I'm one of the technical <laughs> people. All right. So let's let's talk a little bit. Let, let let's start to get to the nitty gritty about the technical stuff. The people the stuff mm-hmm. that people are probably here to listen to. Um, what's your tech stack like? You've already mentioned Android and iOS. Um, so I think that's probably fairly straightforward. Um, if it's not, then of course, um, you know, feel free to elaborate. But what what's your back end like? Where's it hosted? What what language are you writing stuff in? Things like that. Right. So it's actually we don't write native code on Android and iOS. Um, okay. We used to have that until three or four years ago, I think probably three years ago, when I went to a conference, a Google conference in Florida, and I discovered what Flutter was. Uh, and Flutter, for maybe those of uh, those of the listeners who haven't heard of this, is a framework that uh, is developed by Google, which is similar to React Native uh, from from Facebook. So you write code once, and then it compiles to uh, Android, it compiles to iOS, and lately you can compile from the web. You can compile to Windows, Linux, Mac. You can com- basically compile your app everywhere. 
which saves us a lot of headache because I never sat down to learn Swift correctly and I did not want to do it. Uh, this way we have one code base. That means all of our users get the same features at the same time, uh, same experience, instead of having to rely on two different code bases and possibly possibility of bugs and, and so on and so forth. So from a front-end perspective, we work with Flutter. Even the new web version of the app, which is still not publicly available, is also built in Flutter. Um, as for the backend, uh, we write in the most popular backend language called PHP uh, that everybody loves so much. But uh, it is uh, PHP has helped us prototype very fast. So I know a lot of people hate the language, but it's it's stuck around. It's kind of legacy at this point, which is weird to say in a startup, but it's it's stuck around and we have agreed to just keep using it because it works. Um, we have backend, yes, uh, PHP. We work with both MySQL and Mongo databases, um, depending on what type of data we need to store because we have a lot of data coming in from all of these sensors. Um, and all of this is being hosted on the cloud. Uh, we use DigitalOcean servers uh, right now, both for the databases and for the uh, for the backend. What kind of, if, if you're willing to share this, what kind of request mm -hmm. volume do you have these days? We have a lot. According to Cloudflare, I think the last report that I saw from Cloudflare, they have cached approximately, I think, Two or three terabytes of data that went through okay. through the servers that were supposed to hit uh, hit our servers. So it really depends on season. Uh, right now, the app has two seasonalities. During the summertime, when you have fire season in the U.S., we have a lot of users, especially from California. During the winter time, we have a lot of users from Eastern Europe because this is where you have a lot of uh, pollution during the winter. Unfortunately, one of the countries where I also come from. Um, so it really depends, but we have anywhere from 10 to 200,000 active users um, per day. It very much uh, varies depending on season. And that's why we, we tend to make big changes to the server when it's low season, when we can can mess up less, let's say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so ha uh, how many data sources do you have? I think, you, I think you may have mentioned a number earlier. It was quite a large number. Around 35,000 data sources. And And how are you... Uh, I don't know, probing that data? I mean, how are you aggregating that? What does that sort of look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a pull model, uh, basically. So we, we have the APIs of all of these endpoints. Uh, for some of them, it's public APIs, which is great. For others, we have to be a bit more creative. Uh, for example, when especially when it comes down to government websites, they tend to, to not like the concept of an API. And it's, sometimes it may come down to scraping a HTML table uh, in order to, to get the latest data. Um, but we have uh, all of these different providers built in as basically plug-and-play providers in our main architecture. So when you when you find a new provider, I don't know, I was talking to uh, the UNDP mission in uh, Kyrgyzstan. They called me up and they said, hey, listen, we heard about your app, but there's no data for Kyrgyzstan. We have a portal which shows it. Can it be in your app? I think it took us less than 30 minutes, and I told them, open the app again, and Kyrgyzstan was there. Uh, so we have built this, this plug-and-play architecture, which basically you just write a little bit of code about the concrete API that you're pinging from, and then uh, there's a cron job that takes over, and then every hour it would ping this place, it would grab all of the data, it would generalize it in our own format, store it in our database, cache it, and then deliver it to users. So you have 35,000 sources that you're, you're, you're querying on a cron job, so that's at least 35,000 requests per hour that you're making. Not really, not really. So the good thing, the good thing is that depending on the APIs, I really love APIs when you can ping one endpoint and you will get all of the data for all of the stations. 
It is a huge JSON file, for example. I know it takes a lot of memory, but it makes our life a lot easier so we don't have to do 35,000 requests per hour uh, to these. Some providers don't have that and we have to default to, to pinging every single station every single hour. Um, but we try to generalize this as much as possible so we don't, uh, of course, we don't seem like bots at the end of the day that, 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 that are pinging this, uh, um, this website and we don't overload their servers as well because a lot of these government servers, including the one from my country, are hosted on a potato. So if you have more than two consecutive users, they will fail. Uh, so it's we're kind of even helping out governments in certain countries by saving their in infrastructure because people use our app instead of their website. So it, it, at least it doesn't crash. What what kinds of data are you gathering? I mean, I, I yeah, are, do you get data about which pollutants are in the air, or just how much mm -hmm. particulate matter, or or what? We try to get as much raw data as possible, so we need the raw data. Uh, we take particulate matter, especially PM ten, PM two point five. We work with ozone, uh, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, uh, carbon monoxide. Basically, anything that a station can provide, we will take, and we will show it in the app. So the more data the station can provide, the better and clearer the picture of air quality is in one place. Um, after we have all of this data, we have to generalize this information. We have to aggregate it into an index. Um, a lot of countries have, unfortunately, different indexes. There's no one global index that, that everybody agreed to. There's a US version of the air quality index. There's a European one, there's a Chinese one. There's, there's so many. Uh, right now, we work with both European and uh, US air quality index uh, measurements. So once we take all of this raw data, we use different formulas to calculate this one single number, this one air quality index measurement. And then that's the one that initially anybody in the app can see. But then you can dive deep um, into, the, into the data, into the details and see, OK, it is being derived from these raw values of these raw pollutants and see what is actually making the problem in the air. Is it PM10? Or is it is it ozone, for example? So at a quick glance, a user can just sort of get a number and they, they have an idea what it's like. Then if they care about the details, then they, they have that available to the extent exactly. that it is available. Exactly, exactly. Our idea is to make it simple. So we want you with, with a quick glance, you open the app. Even if, in, if you don't even look at the number, there's a big colored box, green, yellow, red, uh, purple. So based on the color, you can say, okay, okay, I know the air quality outside here is this. That's great. But if you want to dive into more details, you have a bunch of stuff. First of all, you can look at historical graphs. You can look at predictions based on the satellite data. You can look at the raw pollutants. You can look at a map of every single station on the world that we have data from right now. You can see the predictions for, for the air quality in places that we don't using the satellite data. Um, so you can favorite a bunch of stations and see how it is at my mom's place, for example, or at my, my my work or at my school where my children go, for example. So you can have kind of a very big overview of, of what's going on um, in your area. You mentioned predictions. I'm curious. Um, I mean, I'm curious about all sorts of things there. What kinds of predictions can you make? And, and then I guess the second one is question is, how accurate can they be? Right. That is a very tricky thing to do. We have tried year <laughs> over year, model over model to figure out predictions. What we're doing right now is we actually left the predictions to the experts. Uh, these predictions are from, again, from the European Space Agency. They have a bunch of models that they run from weather to data and they just pump out numbers. And we say, okay, you know what? These are the predictions that the European Space Agency says might happen in the next 72 hours. And they are on the majority of locations quite good. Quite good. We can we can see that they overlap, let's say, 80% of the time, which is quite quite okay. 
Um, but unfortunately, not everywhere can this work. For example, um, here in the city where I live in, uh, companies tend to get smart and turn uh, off their filters or, or turn on their incinerators um, around night, midnight, when there's no inspectors out so that they can't get fined. And unfortunately, this is hard to predict. So you don't know when these things will happen or will not happen. You can say per season, on general, in January, it's going to be worse than in June. But you cannot predict it that well. So that's why we kind of keep the predictions as a nice-to-have thing. It's there, but we give a big warning saying, hey, listen, these are satellite estimates. This is as far as we've gotten with this. Hopefully, in the future, we'll be able to derive better models get better uh, better predictions. We're working with local universities here who already have an idea of how they think that we can we can use this. Um, and hopefully within, I don't know, half a year, we might be able to put their model to the test. Fascinating. So how far into the future do these predictions typically go? Is it like, for, can you make a plan for the next weekend or is it just like tomorrow and the next day or something like that? Kind of like they go up to 72 hours. So they don't have okay. a 72 hour forecast window uh, from so the moment that you're querying. Um, that's as, that's as far as they go. Uh, you can probably find predictions that go up to probably ten days, I think. But then the the quality of those predictions is 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 quite low, so we just don't don't show. Them. Yeah, makes sense. How did you make the decision to go with PHP and with DigitalOcean? Uh, what what alternatives did you consider, and and how did you end up there? So for PHP, it was basically what did I know at the time of development. I remember that as a kid, I was actually taking a course, local course here for, for web development, and they were teaching PHP. So that was the one backend language that I knew back in the day. And I said, hey, look, it helps me quickly develop. It helps me quickly prototype these things. As a startup, you tend to want to move fast. Um, so instead of sitting here and doing some big boilerplate framework of, uh, of things, uh, we're able to, to quickly develop new features and, and put them out. Of course, it comes with a lot of the drawbacks that PHP comes with um, as a loosely typed language, but it still gets the job done right now. Uh, at some point in the future, as we get more tech people on board, we might be migrating to, to something else. Uh, but so far, as much as my co-founder uh, hates me for, for having to learn PHP now and what's with all the dollar signs everywhere, we, uh, we, work, with, uh, we work with PHP. As for DigitalOcean, it was a, uh, a, a very interesting story and a lesson learned. Um, initially, uh, AirCare was hosted on Amazon service. And I'm not sure what their pricing models are now, but back then they were traffic-based. So the more traffic you got, the more you had to pay. Um, and it would, would, would scale automatically. Um, this was in the first year or two of, of AirCare's, uh, let's say, launch uh, locally here. And it was only a, a small app. Here in Macedonia, nobody else outside of the country even, even heard about it, especially. It wasn't even translated in a different language. Um, but the local politicians heard about it, and they were not happy that somebody was talking about AirCore that was there. So one day, I try to open the app, and I see it's not working. So I get confused. Why, why is it not loading? I pop up the server. I look at the logs, and I see that the, log, that the server disk has, has filled up, which is weird because that should not happen. It was a big disk. And I started looking into it, and I realized that we were in day three of a DDoS attack. So the app was under attack for three days straight. But because Amazon servers can take the attack that a, that a country of two million can, can forge up, so it's nothing for them, they were quite fine. But the logs actually in the server 
filled up and clogged up the server so the server could no longer process. Um, and I freaked out. Okay, wait, what? The, the app is now under attack. We, we got to do something about this. And especially as a novice developer at that point, I really didn't know much about security and, and how to protect an app. I mean, to, to that point, I was still making GET requests with a password in them. So it was it was a, a thing that I needed to learn very, very quickly. So I sat down, I shut off the server, and I had to figure out ways of, of putting protection like Cloudflare on it to migrate it to, to a host that will not charge me for traffic, to put a lot of caching on top so that and not to expose my endpoints so they can't directly attack them. Um, and it took three days for me basically locked in my room and only eating and coding to fix this because uh, this was my baby. The app is my baby and someone's attacking my baby. So now I have to figure out a way to protect it. And after three days, I leave my room. We've migrated to DigitalOcean at this point. Uh, but I have, I think it was $600 uh, bill in my hand from Amazon. Amazon saying, hey, look, that's the traffic you got. You got to pay. And as a student in Macedonia in Eastern Europe, 600 bucks is a lot of money. Uh, luckily, I had something saved up from, from some jobs that I've been doing, so I could pay the bill, but that would basically leave me bankrupt. So I put a pledge on Facebook and said, hey, guys, listen, this is what happened. Here's the server logs for those who want to look into it and probably maybe see where the uh, attack is coming from. But then who do you call? You call the police and say, hey, listen, stop attacking me. Uh, so we, we put it out there and I asked people, hey, could you donate a couple bucks? Here's my PayPal. If it works, great. If not, at least for me to cover the bill. I came back six hours later, I think I was outside trying to catch a breath, and I came back and there were over $1,500 in donations, which might not sound a lot, but for, for here, again, for, for such a small country with such a low economy level, it was crazy. I uh, At that point, I kind of learned that, hey, listen, people saw AirCare as their app. Not It was no longer my app, as it was the app of the community, and they did not like if someone was messing with it. So from a, from a hard lesson learned, this is when we started to migrate to a uh, to DigitalOcean just because their pricing was much more affordable, just because even if we got hit by a DDoS attack, we wouldn't be bankrupt, um, even though, they, of course, they have uh, models of where, where you can scale the server if you if you so wish. Uh, but now, years after, with more much more experience, I still am happy to be on DigitalOcean just because their customer support is, I don't know, in my opinion, unbeatable. They are, uh, they're very, very good at, at helping you out whatever type of problem you have. How many servers or VMs are you are you using? Is it a single server or do you have some sort of distributed uh, workload there? We're using a whole one server. A whole uh, one server. A whole one server to, to do all of this. Uh, we're we're yeah. slowly starting to distribute all of this. Um, the okay. second guy that I have on board, my my co-founder, who is a techie, uh, he, he came here and he wrote a big list of no's that, that I've put down in the architecture. It's like, okay, microservices, we get rid each server has their own thing, so as to not clog everything else. So we're in the process of distributing this to, to multiple servers now, um, because there's a lot of computation that goes into this. Uh, there's one thing to, to to grab the data. There's there's a whole different process that serves the data. There's a third process that generates, uh, I don't know, heat maps that 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 you can see in the app, um, which again is, is is quite a cumbersome process because it's, it's, it involves huge amounts of data that are being processed. So we're trying to distribute a lot of these into into smaller servers that even if they go down. It won't drag everything else, um, everything else with it. Uh, we finally, he convinced me to get the databases at least off of that one machine. So we have uh, managed databases that we said, okay, you know, DigitalOcean, you handle our databases. I don't want to sit down and have to learn how to manage a database server at this point. Um, so we're using a managed uh, database uh, 
MongoDB database there. And we used to have a MySQL database that we kept uh, all of our data and measurements on, but we realized that with the huge amount of data that we have, it simply would not scale well. Um, and it simply did not, wasn't as effective as MongoDB is in, in querying all of these, these huge uh, time-bound and location-bound data. So this is why we chose to migrate to a different database system. What is your software uh, development cycle look like? Let's say you have a new idea for a great new feature, mm -hmm. or maybe it's a bug fix. Walk me through the steps it takes to from from the idea until it's in front of customers. Got it. So we let, let, let's take a let's take a new feature for example. So with, with the new feature, uh, it would come down through one of our weekly meetings, probably where where someone would pitch this idea and say, "Hey, look, this seems like a great thing that we want to develop." Uh, we would sit down and we do some quick research on it. Let's see. Uh, I don't know. Has anybody else done something like this? What's, what's the competition looking at this? Is there any point in doing this? If it's a bigger feature that requires more coding, we actually start doing user interviews. We're working on a really cool health feature right now, but because it is very big in uh, technical terms, we can't simply put out a prototype and see if people like it. We have to do a lot of user research, user interviews, trying to get this down. After we have that, uh, we would sit down and we start uh, figuring out, okay, how do we call this? What parts of the system are being touched? Uh, probably split this up into me and my, my other co-founder. I take one area and tackle, he takes another area and tackles it. Um, and then we would come together and, and, uh, and connect this. Um, luckily, um, when I was starting development on Aircare back in the day, I was scared of Git and I was scared of any version control system. So I would have a USB, which I would plug into different places. Uh, we don't do this anymore, which is great. <laughs> uh, so after we uh, we work on our separate branches and start merging all of these things and checking out each other's code, um, we would do like very short code reviews. Uh, me being more experienced in uh, the current code base would kind of review uh, how my friend's code connects, my co-founder's code connects to all the services. And then he would review my code from a, Mode code smells and code uh, code practices type of uh, type of way. And once we both agree that everything is good, this will get merged into. If it's a server feature, would get merged into the server database and then deployed. Um, we have automated scripts that would monitor if something goes wrong. Um, I'm working now on a script that, of course, will also revert in order to stop uh, if we push something out and we didn't catch it on time that it's a problem just automatically reverted to a previous state so we don't uh, impact too many users um, and that's kind of a a small pipeline uh, of everything we have monitoring tools that are set up that connect to, to slack that connect to email that will start uh, freaking out if something has gone wrong um, and this is talking from a server perspective from a client perspective on the mobile apps it's a more cumbersome process because then once you have the code, let's say in Git, agreed on, um, we have to test on a multitude of devices. We have a bunch of devices that we test on from iPhones to Androids to Huawei phones that don't have Google services on them, uh, that you must know that it doesn't crash. Different versions of operating systems. Uh, it helps that, for example, you can test on emulators for Android, but for iOS, there are no emulators. There are simulators on your Mac that just simulate an iPhone environment, but do, do not emulate the actual thing. So it you'll see how it'll look like, but you're not 100% sure that this is how it'll act. So you need always a physical device to test. From that point on, it gets pushed out to all of these different app stores that Aircare is deployed on. And depending on the app store, it takes a while for it to, from anywhere from an hour to, to a week uh, to get uh, approved if there's any manual um, approval process and to get launched.
So that's kind of how how it looks like. It's not as sophisticated as bigger companies. Um, I used to work for Booking.com uh, in Amsterdam for for four years as a software engineer. So there we had much uh, bigger release cycle process and and deployment, and it was it was very hectic. But as a startup, we tend to minimize the overhead that we have so we can go faster and uh, kind of employ the idea of fail fast. If if, if we're going to do it, we might fail, but we'll fail fast, figure it out, fix it, and and, and continue with it rather than um, put, I don't know, 20 different types of systems that will slow our development to a crawl. Because when you're, when you're a startup and you're fighting the competition, which have raised millions of dollars, you really need to be fast. If you start very slow, they will eat you up like a cupcake. So on the server side, uh, what kind of automation, if any, do you have in place for de for deploying and in, in, in updates? And, and what, what I mean, is it is it a is it an FTP process that you manually trigger to update the server, or do you have like a blue green deployment process, or how how does all of that work? Uh, currently, it's actually an FTP process. It's okay. it's it's very it's very basic. Um, now we uh, we deploy to get. Uh, we go to Git, and then with with hooks, it tries to deploy directly on our server. Um, so at, at least we don't get very desynchronized between uh, what we have on our local machines, what there's on Git, and then what's on the actual server, and that's running. So we we, we tend to make sure that whatever's on Git is production worthy, uh, at least on the main branch is production worthy, mm -hmm. and then that gets automatically deployed um, to the server. So is the server essentially running a Git checkout? Yeah. Okay. I, I've heard Dave uh, Dave Farley, I think, say recently uh, on an interview that he remembers the good old days when when continuous delivery was FTPing one file to your PHP server or your Perl server, or whatever. So, you know, that, it, people like to to crap on these languages, but they they do give you a certain amount of flexibility for for, for this of sort course. of thing. <laughs> of course, no, this this is great, and I mean, even if there's there's something that's really going on bad on the server, we can FTP it. Yeah. You get in there, you FTP, you deploy, it's there. And th this is why I'm saying it, it allows us to move fast. Yes, it has its negative sides, but uh, yeah, the good. Th th there's something about it why they call it the good old days. There, there's good right. in there as well, and that's why we stick yeah. to it. <laughs> I like what you said. There's good in there. Not everything about those days were good, but there was definitely exactly. good in there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what, what's your strategy? You've talked about some manual testing, especially with all these different mm -hmm. mobile devices and so on. Yeah. Um, what what sort of automation do you use for testing, if any? I mean, do you have unit tests on the server or on the front end? Um, what does that look like? From a server perspective, yes, we have some basic unit tests that 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 I wouldn't call them unit; they're more integration tests um, to, to just to make sure that everything else is connecting to everything else. Um, we tend to have a we have a mock we have a mock environment where we initially deploy all of these things and see how it works and and see if any of the scripts start to fail or, or implode in our face. Uh, we have a mock environment of the app, which, uh, of course, connects to the mock environment of the server. So we have kind of a whole separate testing staging area, however you want to call it, Vanguard uh, area, where we, we play along and, and make sure first initially that it works there. Um, after that, once we, we're satisfied with the manual testing and once we're satisfied that the, the scripts that automatically run do not show any signs of failure, then, and I'm talking about the scripts, so these are not scripts that are written specifically to test things. These are the actual scripts that would run on the actual production server. They just run on our testing server, and we monitor to see if anything explodes, if anything goes down. Um, we have a lot of logging uh, that, that's included there, so any any little thing that happened, it'll start triggering, uh, triggering warnings. Once we have that, then uh, we do the manual testing on the devices. If all of that is well, then we do a stage rollout. So um, every time we try to do a, a stage rollout, especially on Android, uh, because it gets released faster 
and we can faster uh, fix something, then on Apple, Apple takes a longer time because they have a manual review process. So we do stage rollout, 10%, 50%, everything good, 100%. Um, even so, and, and that's not an extensive, extensive testing framework, and it has gotten us sometimes in trouble where we've missed something, uh, something big. I remember at one point it was a very ridiculous thing. It was not uh, a syntax error. It was not um, any sort of script error. It was a logical error in code. And those logical errors, yes, you can catch with good testing. Uh, we didn't have anything back then. And what, what happened was uh, I deployed a version of the app that did not have ads on it for some reason. Uh, and, and I think that the, the if statement was wrong. And I didn't see it. It was great. And then suddenly I see day after day the ad revenue varies firmly start to drop and I'm asking what, what's going on did why, why is this happening until I realized there's no app there's no ads on the app so I was halfway across the city I had to rush back in do a quick redeployment uh so yeah adding more tests and that's something that we're trying to do now um you know the problem with with these things is uh you're limited on the amount of people you have on the project until recently it was me and if you have one guy trying to do back-end front-end app development server management and so on uh there's only 24 hours in the day so you start to cut corners and you say okay you know what i'll test manually and then we'll do it live basically we'll uh we'll, we'll let users test live but now that there's more and more people coming on board we're able to put on these well quite well-defined software practices and make sure that everybody's uh um, at least some automated tests that we have that are running in the background You've mentioned logging and monitoring a couple times. I'm curious what you mm -hmm. have in place there. Like, what, how will you know uh, if the ads aren't working next time, or if the server is completely offline, or or whatever? When, <laughs> when something goes wrong, how do you know about it? We tend to use a multitude of tools for that. Uh, from very basic stuff like Uptime Robot, which which just pings the site and sees if if it goes down or not, um, to tools from um, DigitalOcean itself to monitor the the stats of the server, see if we're hogging memory, see if uh, CPU is going crazy, see if there's latency. For example, the, we recently discovered one of these issues that we had a lot of latency during a certain period of the hour only because we instated these checks that came from DigitalOcean that automatically look at these things. Um, and then finally, we have Logly, uh, which is basically a service that, that just looks at the logs uh, of the server and pulls out specific ones which you filter for. Um, and every time that we have uh, logging from our own scripts, we tag them with specific tags that um, this service would look for, take it in there, and if something starts to to appear, would then ping us on our Slack server. So kind of we try to use Slack as our uh, uh, go-to thing, hoping that Slack doesn't go down because if that goes down, we have to figure out a different ways of monitoring. But uh, um, right. th that's kind of the problem when you start to rely on one service to the other service to the other service to, to, to monitor stuff. And sometimes it comes down to just going onto the server and looking at the logs yourself and just kind of combing through all the raw logs and seeing, is there something out of place here? Is there something that's telling me that I haven't caught with any of the other services that might be might be an issue? But we try to automate all of this because simply you don't you don't have time to sit down and look through server logs uh, all day. So yeah, it's it, it's a combination of a couple of these services that that would monitor all of these. And uh, of course, Google has uh, some nice things as well. When you deploy apps on the Play Store in uh, beta testing, so beta or alpha testing, wherever you put these things it would automatically test the apps for you. So it does some very basic testing, but it'll tell you, it'll just randomly click on stuff and try to go to different screens. It'll try to try to do a lot of these things and it'll tell you if the app crashes and you get videos, you get screenshots, you get all of these things. So even if our logging misses something, 
then through the deployment process, it might get caught. What other challenges have you been surprised by, if, if any, uh, in the last few years as you've been working on this? Some of these things, for example, we were implementing a service uh, for, so we, we did a whole redesign of the app uh, earlier this year. We decided, hey, listen, the concept of the app working per country, that's how it used to work. You, you select a country in the app and then it'll get the data for that country. If you want to check somewhere in, in a different country, you have to select a different country and it'll reload the whole app and there were bunch of other services that were connect. We realized this doesn't make any more sense. We're, we're going global. We need to make sure that you can look up any place from the app without it having to reload and reload a bunch of different files that are cached and so on. Um, it, it, one of the processes in, in, in this whole redesign was that we needed to be able to look up any place in the world. We couldn't rely on the names of the stations that we had set manually before. So you had to have a geolocation service. Um, and we looked online, we found, I think they were called Location IQ. Uh, it was one of these services, and we said, "Hey, they have a great, uh, great service. Uh, we can use this. We can put it there. Um, we connect it. We launch it. Um, what we didn't do at that point was we didn't uh, care to calculate the amount of requests that this API was going to get hit by, um, especially during surge times. If there's a wildfire going on in California and suddenly everybody's on the app, looking at at, at how bad the air pollution is, um, and at one point I opened the app and again, it's struggling to load. And I was very confused, why? Um, and these guys reach out to us and they say, hey, listen, we see that you're exceeding the quotas probably two times than, than, than you should be. Uh, there, there's something apparently that you've miscalculated here. We'll give you a little bit of uh, wiggle room. We'll give you some free credit, uh, but you gotta get this thing sorted out. So that, that was kind of one of, the, one of these struggles where we realized, oh wait, if you scale very fast, a lot of these services that you might be using that have quotas will breach the quotas. And unless it is set up that they will automatically either upgrade you to a different tier or will will give you some 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 wiggle room with free credit so you can figure out what you want to do, they might bring down your service that, that that you're working on. So from that point on, we said, okay, let's see what are these dependencies that we have, what are their rate limits, and then see even if they go down, can we make sure that it does not bring down uh, the, the, the whole app. It does not bring down the whole experience. It might say, hey, I don't know what your current location name is, so we'll just call it current location, but better that than it not loading in the first place. So I think it was, again, a valuable lesson for us to learn. Listen, if there's a lot of these, uh, you will have surges, for example, with us, we know we will have surge moments and we need to make sure that we can survive these surges. So now we're looking into ideas of, of how to stress test, basically, the server, how to stress test the databases, how to stress test everything to make sure that um, if we launch in a, a new market and there's a lot of people that suddenly get on board, we don't want to. It's a nice problem to have that you crash from a lot of users. But again, let's not have the problem in the first place. That's a, that's a great segue into what I wanted to ask next, which is uh, where would you like to see improvement? Where would you like to eff, uh, focus effort on, on improving uh, the technology? I think um, what we're starting to do right now is overhauling the backend. The backend is uh, something that was initially written eight years ago by an inexperienced programmer called myself. Uh, and then as I got better and I, as I started learning more and more about software development practices and the ways that these things are handled, uh, getting experience from working at, working at Booking.com, which had a, a huge, uh, huge code base, I started uh, implementing improvements. But improvements from time to time, you get more and more implementation. Um, sometimes you would rewrite whole services. Sometimes it would be just patchwork. Um, and at some point, you got to say, okay, listen, we're done with feature development. 
even though that's that's something that I love. I don't know if I'm maybe at night I'm a product manager and I love features more. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> at some point I gotta stay stop. And my co-founder as well, who's very technical, says stop. And we have to re uh, recode the the backend because we've learned a lot now of of how it is to to better structure all of these flows. We've learned how to do a lot of uh, automation. We have learned how to do a lot of uh, basically all of these cool things and cool features we've learned throughout the years, which would require us to recode the backend. The good thing is that the recoding of the backend does not take a lot because uh, every year I have these cycles where um, my OCD kicks in and I say, okay, listen, I need to clear all the clutter out. So I start cleaning out all of, all of the backend or some dead code here and there, uh, files that are not being used. And we're still keep, keeping the, uh, the backend quite slim. So, the moment that it comes to recode this and, and, and make sure that we're using maybe a better framework, because um, right now, even in PHP, we use our own kind of little framework to use a better framework to automate testing. Then I think both my my internal developer and my co-founder would be very happy uh, with, uh, with the outcome that we will have. You were talking about... Um all these sensors that you're querying and that some people can sort of have their own sensor. What, what's involved in, 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 in setting up a sensor? If I want to put one in my backyard, what do I do and how do I get it integrated with your app? Right. Luckily there's a guide within the app. So if you nice. download the app, there's a big <laughs> button that says add sensor, which will tell you, um, it comes down to where you are and what's available to you in the U S for example, there's a company called purple air. And they sell these kits that they're pre-made sensors. You just buy them. You don't have to do anything yourself. You buy it. You hook it up to your Wi-Fi. It it it, it starts working from from there on. It's it's very easy to use. Um, from that point, it gets connected to their servers, and from their servers, automatically we pull it in. So we have scripts that automatically add new sensors all the time. So you basically don't have to do anything. You plug it in. Twenty-four hours later, it's on the app. It's there. In other parts of the world. Um, for example, in Europe, there is a uh, network of sensor volunteer sensors called Sensor Community. Now, Sensor Community works with custom with with little built sensors that you can build yourself. So you order the parts from um, either a local manufacturer or from AliExpress, for example, uh, from China. They would come. You would put them together. It requires a bit more work because you plug in some cables and then you you flash some firmware. So it's a bit more techy. Um, but we are actually doing workshops here with students in, in, in high schools and teaching them how to do this. So it's it's definitely not very hard. You don't have to weld anything. You put this all in some some PVC tubing, you, you strap them onto your backyard, and then you have a station that starts to measure the air quality there. Now, there is a certain problem with uh, data quality that is involved, especially when you have people putting up their own sensors, because nothing stops me from taking that sensor and putting it in my bedroom, putting it in my basement, putting it on the 45th floor of a building, um, the sensor can't know. It does not know where it is. It's inside, it's outside. It's, uh, we have guides which tell people, hey, yeah, it has to be outside. It can't be in, in, in kind of a, a little air valley, we call it. So you can't put it in inside of your balcony. It has to be outside. It has to have some air, no, no higher than the second floor and so on. But we also have algorithms to keep track of this. So if our system detects that one sensor in a particular area is deviating significantly from all of these other sensors, it will start flagging that sensor and saying, hey, listen, this seems like an unstable data source. You might want to not take this into consideration. If this keeps being flagged for a longer period of time, then our system automatically turns it off and says, okay, we're not using this data source anymore. It seems unreliable. From time to time, we would ping it again, check if it's okay. If it's okay, it'll turn back on. 
but usually it tries to keep it off. Um, because, I mean, from 35,000 sensors, it's very hard. To, you, you can't go outside and check all of 35,000 sensors and where they're placed around the world. So you have to rely on algorithms that will make sure that even if people misplace or mishandle them, that uh, the users and the data won't be affected. All right. Um, is there anything that I have missed or that I should have asked you about that you wanted me to ask you about that I didn't? I think I think you did a really good job of covering it. It's my, one of my points of, of creating Aircare, apart from trying to save the environment, because according to data that we've found, 7 million people every year lose their lives prematurely due to air pollution. That is uh, 3.5 times my country population. It is huge number. Um, it is a big number here in the Western Balkans. It is here in, even in Eastern Europe in general. It's a big problem. So one of the ideas was to raise awareness to get people to talk about it. But the second idea, uh, which I wanted to do, is to show that even from this tiny little country, which most people struggle to find on a map, where we're, we're very, very small, you can't even put a pin in there. We're very small. But we're on top of Greece, for those who are wondering. If you know where Greece is, we're right on top. We're the next, uh, next door neighbor. But uh, um, even from this small country, you can make something that can help millions of people around the world. And this was kind of our goal, to motivate people here, to motivate um, young people to, to try and build their own startups, to work with technology. Um, and it's working. A lot of people here are getting interested in technology. A lot of companies are coming. A lot of devs are, are, are being born and being being. Uh, thought here. Um, so in, in a way, it, it makes me happy that apart from trying to help people know what they breathe and saving the air quality, we're also promoting the idea that you don't have to be a Silicon Valley-based company in order to succeed around the world. You can come from this tiny city in this tiny country in the middle of nowhere and still make an impact on a global scale. Is your company struggling with software delivery? Would it be helpful to bounce some ideas around with somebody who's been there and done that before? You can borrow my brain for a one-on-one -on -one consultation call. Go to jhall.io slash call for all the details. Will you tell our listeners where they can go to find the app uh, or learn more about the company? Sure. Uh, so there's two sources. One, you can go on our website, which is getaircare.com. And if you type getaircare.com, you can read more about our story where we started from, we have a TED Talk there, which you can look at if you're more interested. I gave a TED Talk presentation on this whole concept. Uh, of course, you can download the app. If you're more keen on, on checking it on your phones, it's free. It's in the App Store. It's in the Play Store. You can go there. It's called AirCare. So if you type AirCare um, in, in any of the app stores that are available out there, you will find it. Uh, you can download it for free. You can play around. And uh, hopefully, it will help you know what you breathe, and it will make sure that you're more aware about uh, what is in the air around you. And if anyone's interested, if they have questions that I didn't ask and they want to contact you directly, uh, is that permitted and how can they find you? Yes, yes, you can totally do this. Uh, you, you can uh, you can ping us through any of the emails you find on, on our website on getaircare.com. Uh, all of them go straight to my inbox anyway. So no matter okay. which email you will uh, you will choose, I will read it and I will uh, I would be glad to to help out. Uh, I believe in, in in helping and giving back to the community. That's how uh, we've come so far because of the community aspect, and this is why we love giving back to the community. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Gorian. I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. To all of our listeners, uh, we'll see you next time.